Well, it's First Corinthians 15 is a pretty amazing chapter, isn't it? So positive and so so absolutely wonderfully written, um, underlining the <clears throat> the great hope that we have at the end of, of all this, uh, this this life of the resurrection of the body. And yet, <clears throat> he he talks there about what it would be like if Jesus is not risen and if we do not have the hope of of resurrection. He says, verse 29. <clears throat> Uh, sorry, verse 30, that we stand in jeopardy, we would stand in jeopardy every hour if Jesus had not risen from the dead and if we don't have the hope of resurrection. And that is how it would be, that the risk of death which is there in every human life is there every moment, every hour, as he puts it. And how on earth can one live in that sort of way when you know that this life might might just drift out of your fingers just like that, if there is no you know, sure hope ahead, whereas if there is the hope of the resurrection of the dead, <clears throat> then we don't live with that constant question mark over us all the time. And he, he says that if there is no resurrection of the dead, verse 32, then why did I fight with beasts at Ephesus? Um, and if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And that really is the case, that really if there is no future hope, then we might as well just get on trying to enjoy the moment uh, as far as we can. But that the fact that there is a future hope for us means that, therefore, it is not for us to eat and drink because, well, tomorrow it's all going to be over. This really does affect our way of life right now. Now, when he talks about resurrection, we might say, yeah, well, we're all going to be resurrected because we're responsible, so we've got to come to the Day of Judgment. But I, I don't think he can be talking in that sort of primitive kind of way, because in that case, it would not be a great motivation to think, well, I'm going to come to the Day of Judgment and who knows whether I'll be accepted or not accepted, that is no motivation. That is not the uh, the perspective that he, he talks about here, as if resurrection is what gives you the strength to, uh, to, to go forward, not living a life just for today, because you know you have the wonderful resurrection ahead. So he has in mind resurrection to eternal life. And that is why... His whole argument here is really that because Christ rose, and he rose not just to die again, but he rose to eternal life, therefore we have that same hope, because he died and he rose again, just as we did in baptism, and as he said, because I live, you shall live also. So then Paul is assuming that his readership are going to be raised to eternal life. And yet when you look at what a mixed up lot they were there in Corinth, um, that's, uh, that, that's quite, a, quite an act of grace to, to reason like that, because they were in a complete mess there, both doctrinally and morally, in all sorts of ways, as we've looked at in earlier studies in, uh, in Corinthians. And yet he assumes that his readership are going to participate in the resurrection to eternal life. 
And really, if we accept that each other has been baptized into Christ, and seeing that we are not to condemn each other, we are not to judge each other in the sense of condemning and saying, you will not be in the kingdom, you are not a Christian, you are out of the body of Christ, seeing that we can't make those kind of judgment calls, you therefore have to accept, you have to assume, that all your brothers and sisters, even if they're as uh, woolly and uh, morally weak as the people in Corinth were, you have to assume that they are going to be resurrected and live forever with you. Now that's a pretty big assumption, and whilst in some ways it's difficult to sort of control our natural desire to, to be judgmental, in another sense it gives you a great freedom, that you are free from the need to separate from your brethren. <clears throat> you are free from the need to judge in the sense of condemning and deciding who is serious about uh, eternal life and who isn't. You have to assume that all your baptized brethren are going to live eternally. You have no option but to do that because we cannot judge. And Paul's attitude to the Corinthians, I think, is uh, an excellent encouragement from that point of view. Now, he, I just want to go back to that verse 32, where he says, If after the manner of men, if in just in a human way, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, so why did I do that? Well, how could I have done that if the dead rise not? It's difficult to understand this verse, but I think what he's saying is that because of the hope I have of bodily resurrection, that is what helped me to fight with the beasts at Ephesus, not just after the manner of men. And so whatever crises we face in life, whatever this fighting with beasts at Ephesus was really uh, about, we do not face, as it were, inhuman strength, because we know that we have this hope in the end of bodily resurrection. And yet, think, trying to understand what these beasts at Ephesus really were, I mean, he's writing all this in the context of teaching about the bodily resurrection, and talking about how that future hope of bodily resurrection is what influences human life now. And so it would seem to me that the fighting with beasts at Ephesus was something, therefore, which involved the risk of physical death. That's, that's the, the structure of the, of the argument, that why did I risk my life? Um, well, I risked it, and I didn't go into that risk after the manner of men in a human way. I did it because I had ahead of me the hope of the resurrection of the body, the body that I might lose in this life. And so that, I would say, in my judgment, is why I would say that the beasts that he wrestled with at, at Ephesus are to be understood literally. Now, of course, there is the argument that, no, it's not literal. This is all talking about... Uh, difficult people that he met. Well, <clears throat> of course that may be the case, but it seems to me that the most natural way to read this, both grammatically uh, and also contextually, is that he literally fought with literal animals at Ephesus. And the Romans did sometimes throw people to the lions and, and in the arena and they watched them just being uh, eaten by the lions, etc., uh, as some kind of sport, or there was another thing that they did in some cases, which was to throw people 
um, two wild beasts, uh, people who had a chance of winning the fight. And if they actually killed the wild beast, then they went free. And I think that that's what happened to Paul at Ephesus, because we know that there was an arena there. And at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy 4.17, Paul comments that the Lord saved him out of the mouth of the lion. Now, I, I really can't see that 2 Timothy 4 is using, that the whole chapter is not into figurative language. Um, again, the most natural, comfortable reading of that is that he was saved out of the mouth of a literal lion. Now, Paul is, um, <clears throat> Paul is writing um, to, to the Corinthians here, and let's just go over to 2 Corinthians 1, where writing obviously to the same audience. 2 Corinthians 1, see from verse 8, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning the affliction which befell us in Asia, which is where Ephesus is. Uh, we were pressed out of measure, about strength, we despaired even of our lives. Yes, we even ourselves, I'm reading from the RV, had the answer of death, or the death sentence, the sentence of death, within ourselves, so that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raises the dead, who delivered us out of so great a death, and will deliver, on whom we have set our hope, that he will still deliver us. So again, he, he's talking in, in a context of trust in the God who raises the dead. And he says that this God who raises the dead, even in this life, spared him from a death sentence. Sometime in Asia, when he had a terrible uh, suffering come upon him. Now Ephesus is in Asia. And it would seem to me from that, that Paul is really saying that when he was in Ephesus, um, <clears throat> he, he had uh, been given a death sentence, and yet somehow he was saved out of that death sentence. Now, if what I've suggested is right, that he was thrown to literal lions, or a lion, and yet, to Timothy 4.17, he was saved out of the mouth of that lion, that he uh, killed the lion, or something happened to it, um, and that he was amazingly delivered and therefore set free. That would kind of make sense. Incidentally, going back to 1 Corinthians, um, chapter 4, verse 9, would take on a, a slightly interesting uh, ring in this context. 1 Corinthians 4, 9, I think, uh, I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last of all, as men appointed to death, made a spectacle unto the world, both to angels and to men. Now, if he had been forced to fight as a gladiator against a wild animal that was trying to kill him, in the arena made a spectacle, this is the language of the arena, uh, doomed to death, or appointed to death, um, th this again seems to be the language of the great trouble in Asia that 2 Corinthians 1 has spoken about, or will speak about. Now, if that's right, this is going back to our chapter here in 1 Corinthians 15. He's saying, if I did that, 
if I had that encounter with the lion when I was thrown to the beast in Ephesus, if I had approached that just humanly, he's sort of saying, well, you know, I, I, I couldn't have done it. But I didn't approach it humanly because I had the hope of resurrection. And that, as I say, fits in very much with 2 Corinthians 1, 8 to 10, where he says that I trusted in the God who raises the dead and he saved me out of um, a, a death sentence that I was given. And I trust that he will ultimately deliver me that is in the in the bodily resurrection in the future and so whatever crisis that you and I face in our lives we have to look at it from the point of view that in the end Jesus has risen from the dead and because I am in him I too will rise from the dead to the life eternal incidentally he, he went through this uh, fighting with wild beasts at Ephesus, he says, in uh, verse 32 here. <clears throat> Yet if you go over to chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, verse 8 and 9, he says, I will stay at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Well, sure, there were a lot of adversaries. These guys chucked him to the, uh, or got him chucked to the, to the lion. That's how I read it. But despite that, there's some amazing words in verse 8, I will stay at Ephesus. I mean, it's amazing that if that is true, and what I've suggested, that he was thrown to the wild beasts, yet he stayed there. He didn't get out of there, he stayed there. Why? Because a door had been opened and as we'll see when we study chapter 16, that is very much the language that is elsewhere used about the door of opportunity of preaching or responding to the gospel. And he had knocked, as it were, and the door had been opened. He had wanted to preach the gospel there, and so the Lord had opened the door of opportunity. And you can see there uh, an amazing window, really, into the degree to which Paul really believed in in the need to spread the gospel even at the risk of his own life and that is I think a, an encouragement to us to we who are so terribly uh, shy and nervous about raising the subject of the gospel uh, with some people with her or him who's not interested with, with you know etc all these silly excuses we make we are terribly shy to nudge the guy next to us and tell him or her about the good news of Jesus. And when you think of Paul, thrown to the wild beasts at Ephesus, whatever that actually uh, meant, whether my suggestion is correct or whether it was as bad as that, but in a figurative sense, all the same, he stayed there even longer because he saw the opportunity for the gospel. Now, that really is an encouragement to us to be the more self-sacrificial in our efforts for others, knowing that really people are saved by our preaching of the gospel to them. So then, all through this, he is motivated by the fact that Christ has risen from the dead, and therefore so shall we. I mean, in verses like, that's 22 and 23, 
he almost seems to imply that uh, it's almost automatic that the fact that Christ has died, therefore all those who are in Christ, and he's defined in Romans that we get into Christ by baptism into Christ, that therefore in Christ all those in Christ shall be made alive. Christ is the firstfruits, and then, verse 23, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. And yet, of course, there is the real possibility that there is a great future there that we may miss, that we who are baptized into Christ can fall away. And there is the whole concept of judgment. And yet he, he seems to overlook that, not purposefully, but I think because he is approaching the Corinthians from the point of view that, look, I am not your judge. I assume that all those in Christ are going to live forever and they will share in his resurrection and that's how I approach you so he certainly didn't say look there's some people in this church who don't even believe that Christ was raised from the dead therefore I will not have anything more to do with you guilt by association you're out with me <clears throat> he wasn't like that and, and really, you know, this, this is a huge example to, to us of, of how we should feel about others and also about, uh, about ourselves. But really, if we are in Christ, the resurrection of the Lord means that we therefore will be raised and raised to eternal life. And yet he, he uses the analogy here of uh, seed. He says that um, really when we die, we are a seed that is sown. And that it, uh, it, comes, out of the, uh, <clears throat> it comes out of the earth when it, uh, when it sprouts and God gives it a body. So then the, the giving of the body as it pleases God, uh, and all flesh, he says, verse 39, is not the same flesh. There's different types of uh, plants, there's different types of uh, animals, uh, etc. Um, this indicates something absolutely unique in each of us. And it's also a very comforting way to look at death, that death is actually the planting of a seed which is to, which is to sprout, and which will sprout uh, with a body given to it by God uh, in, a, in a unique way. Now, it doesn't mean that when you put a seed into the ground, it, it literally dies, and then new life comes out of it. That, that is, um, I've heard that said, but I mean, that, that's simply ignorant. That, that isn't what happens. What he's saying is that he's trying to draw the, uh, the parallel between the, uh, the death of a person and the, the seed going into the ground. And it comes out of the ground in the form of sprouting, and verse 38, God gives it a body as it pleases him, and to each seed a body of its own. So there will be something unique about each of us in the kingdom, and there will be a continuity between the person who goes into the grave and the person who comes out of it. Although we will be given a new body, uh, <clears throat> there is still this continuity. And, of course, there must be. Because you and I personally will be saved. And there is no meaning, I suppose, to the idea of, of personal salvation if, in fact, 
the entity or the person that I shall eternally be is totally disconnected to the Duncan that lives in Riga, Latvia and wears spectacles uh, and has brown hair at the moment um, in this life. And so although, as Paul obviously explains here, we shall all be changed and this uh, corruptible must put on incorruption, that, that is of course true. There has to be a change of, of nature. That does not mean that we will not be recognisable as the persons that we now are. And that is really uh, a, a real, uh, well it's a comfort but it's also a, a worry and a, a warning. <clears throat> that our personality will not therefore be fundamentally changed. And so you see, therefore, the, the huge importance which there is attached to human personality and to character development. <clears throat> That's really what this life is all about. And spiritual mindedness is therefore so paramountly important because who you are today is in a sense who you will eternally be. Now, you know, if you're, you're not in touch with the Lord, and if, you're, um, if it's all just a matter of going to meeting and being involved in a, a, a social club or whatever it is that happens to be focused around your church, then you have to think very carefully about, about this fact. You know, who you go into the ground as, at the end of your days, is in a sense who you're going to come out as. Uh, okay, the body will be given to you, will be changed. Of course, the corruptible puts on incorruption. But <clears throat> the, there is that essential continuity between the seed that goes in and the, the, the shoot that springs up. And uh, I think also another thought that arises out of that is that who we are as personalities, as characters, is deeply influenced by those with whom we mix, those who we take as our role models. And we really have to be careful as far as we, we can consciously decide this sort of question. I suppose the acceptance of role models and allowing others to influence us is um, to some degree unconscious, but... Um, and as far as we consciously control that, or have a, a, a conscious uh, a hand upon our own uh, development, as it were, um, we, we should be very careful, because really the personality that we turn into is who we shall eternally be. Now, positively, that means that the effort that, that you make in encouraging others spiritually and being in a sense there, their model, this will have eternal consequence. And this is particularly true, I think, of uh, parents raising little kiddies, um, or not so little kiddies, it, trying to raise them in a way that will lead them to God's kingdom. That the huge influence that you have upon those children, that if they are going to live eternally in the kingdom, uh, that is an eternal influence. This is one of the most significant things that you can do. But if you know you park them in front of the uh, the television or the uh, un, uh, unbridled internet, let's say, um, uh, and just let them be influenced by whatever they they fancy, well, we to put it mildly, we are missing out 
we're passing up a huge opportunity. And so then personality matters. Because sooner or later you and I are going to die. And you and I will be buried or we will go under. Um, we will go back to dust. It's as simple as that. But that is actually a sowing. It's a sowing. Because sooner or later there will be a sprouting when the Lord comes. So then, just in conclusion, I would like to uh, look at the last verse in, in this really wonderful chapter. He says, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord. No labour that is done in Christ is in vain. And it reminds me of what he, he also says to the Corinthians, that we can do nothing against the truth, only for the truth. And that is a great encouragement. That although, of course, everything can often seem in vain, ultimately it is not. Because it is done in Christ. And in the end, Christ died and rose again. And all that we're doing, we do sort of within that context of being him in this world and therefore because we will live eternally with him none of it is in vain now he's talked in verse 14 he's used this same word about uh, vain or vanity he's obviously concerned that his work with the Corinthians had been kind of in vain he says, if Christ has not been raised, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. It's, it's, in, it's been vain, all the work that we've done for you. And so he, uh, he was obviously tempted to think that he'd wasted a huge part of his life or his effort with Corinth, and it was all in vain. And I think he's almost comforting himself in verse 58, uh, that Nothing is actually in vain. Even if you raise kids and they turn away from the Lord or just not interested in him. Even if you are Paul working with Corinth and you teach them baptism and all they do is go get drunk on the wine or the breaking of bread. And plus uh, a whole load of other extracurricular kind of activities that you get hinted at in this correspondence to the Corinthians. All the same, that is not in vain. And he, he's, uh, he says in 58 there, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour is not in vain. And again, he definitely is picking up verse 10 here also, uh, with the word labouring more abundantly. He says that the grace that was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I laboured more abundantly than, than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And he, he says in 58 really, be like me. See that you also respond to God's grace by labouring, by actually doing something concrete, by quitting talking and talking, but actually do something with your life for him, for others. And you will find that in your response to God's grace, no response to God's grace that you make is ultimately wasted, is ultimately in vain. 
And uh, this connects, I think, with what Isaiah says about how God's word is like the water cycle. That the, the rain comes down, the water comes down, and it does uh, achieve good here on the earth. And it does not return to God in vain. So, in fact, all our witness to him, everything that is done as work in the Lord... Even though, as with the Corinthians, it might appear that it's in vain, in fact, no. We can do nothing against the truth, only for the truth.